0: Good morning, church. Good morning, friends. Welcome, everyone. It's great to be here with you this morning. We're going to continue uh, in our memory verse for the month of November. Can you believe this is the second Sunday of November already? And I believe there's only four in the month of November. So I hope you're doing a good job with this month's memory verse. Here we go. We'll say it together. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God... And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. What a a wonderful verse. And I want to take a moment this morning to thank our veterans who are here in service with us uh, today. We're very thankful uh, for your sacrifice, for the time that you gave to our country. I had the opportunity uh, just a few weeks ago actually to have lunch uh, with a veteran, a veteran who uh, attended here a number of years ago, and we got to sit down and have a meal together. And you know every once in a while you go out and you have these meals, or you sit down and you have dinner, maybe you have a couple over or a friend over, and throughout the course of your meal you talk about so many things, and by the time that person leaves, you felt like you have solved all of the problems in the world. You know, I mean, really, just one of those lunches, dinners, breakfasts. I mean, for each person, it's a little bit different. But, you know, we get together, and we talk about a lot of things. And over the course of the next three weeks, we're going to be in the book of Ecclesiastes. And I will tell you this. Ecclesiastes is a book about a lot of things. A lot of things. And it, it's really interesting. There's a quote from uh, one of Pascal's characters in his work, Pensies. His name is Horace. And he said this, quote, To wonder at nothing is almost the only thing which can make and keep a man happy. To wonder at nothing. quote. End quote. And, you know, I wonder sometimes when we get into the book of Ecclesiastes, and maybe sometimes when we have these sit-down lunches or breakfasts or dinners and we feel like we've solved the problems of the world at the end, have we really accomplished that much? I wonder. And you know, as we go into the book of Ecclesiastes, and by the way, if you have your Bibles, you can take them and start to turn there for a while. Ecclesiastes is right in the middle of your Bible. Psalm, Proverbs. Ecclesiastes, it's it's right in the middle, right after the book of Proverbs. We're going to be spending a lot of time in that book over the next three weeks. And at first glance, Ecclesiastes can seem like a book where the author is really wondering at nothing. Nothing. And by some scholars, believe it or not, the book of Ecclesiastes has been called the black sheep of the Bible. Some Bible scholars have actually referred to it that way. In fact, C.S. Lewis, who many in here have probably read and respect, he called Ecclesiastes a book that was nihilistic, even anti-religious. Yet he believed that it was important and that it advanced men further towards the truth. In early Judaism, the two primary schools of early Judaism, uh, the schools of Shammai and the schools of Hillel, they actually argued vigorously as to whether or not the book of Ecclesiastes should even be included in the canon of Scripture. It's a puzzling, perplexing, sometimes seemingly contradictory, often pessimistic, perhaps even a bit fatalistic book. And guess what? We're going to spend the next three weeks in it. (laughs) And we're going to have a great time as we do it. And today, really the goal is we gather, it, this is an introduction today, and so we are going to be going through Ecclesiastes, really just speeding through it, chapters 1 through 9 this week. Next week, chapters 10 and 11, we hone in a little bit, and our final week together will break apart Ecclesiastes chapter 12. So everybody will take a deep breath together and get ready, because we're going to cover nine chapters of Ecclesiastes this morning. And we're going to answer three questions. We're going to answer the question of who wrote it. That's important to know. Who wrote this book? We're going to answer the question of what does it say? What are the major themes in the book of Ecclesiastes? And we're going to answer the question of why is that important? Who wrote it? What does it say? And why is it important? And and really, any time we approach a book of the Bible, answering these three questions at the beginning of a study are massively important, and they're hugely important. It's why we want to begin uh, by answering these questions today. So if you have your Bibles, I hope you're open to the book of Ecclesiastes. And before we dive in and start to answer these questions, let's take a moment and pray. Father, thank you for the time we have together to study your word this morning. We thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes. We know sometimes it can be confusing, sometimes puzzling, Lord, sometimes may even seem contradictory to the way that we think about life. But Lord, we know that that's a good thing. Because we know your word's inspired. We know it's inerrant. We know it's powerful. We know it's useful. We know that every piece of your scripture is useful and profitable for us. And so Lord, we pray this morning as we gather around this book over the next three weeks that you would guide and direct us. You would open our hearts. Open our minds. Give us exactly what you would want us to have as we study your word and help us to leave here changed, growing in a greater love for you and a greater love for those you place in our pathways. And Lord, we pray you would receive the glory for the time we have together. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. And So as we open the book of Ecclesiastes, the first question that we really want to answer is who wrote this wild book? Who wrote it? And Really, the answer is very difficult on many levels. There has not been any clear agreement across scholars pinpointing who they believe, thus saith the Lord, the author is. But we do have a few indicators from the text. Many believe the author was Solomon, David's son. In fact, that's probably the most commonly held position in the church. But in the book, the teacher... Or the preacher, as he's referred to in verse 1, refers to himself as Koheleth. Koheleth. And so many say that this is the author of the book. And really, this man's name, it's a name that means to gather people around himself. And so what we have when we open the book of Ecclesiastes is we have a book that is essentially a teacher who is gathering students around himself. Today it's us, church, the readers of this book. He's gathering us around him and he's saying, listen to me from the experience of what my life has taught me. Listen to me as I reflect, as I look back, listen to me through the experience of What life has taught me life has passed this teacher by very quickly and he's wanting to pass along as much as he can so that those who are coming along behind him do not put their hope in the material things that are meaningless in this world and through the seasons of life that he's endured this teacher he's hitched his hope to and his dreams to many of the different realities that we're going to look at today only to find vanity and meaninglessness in all of them. This is chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 12, 8. It's Koheleth, the teacher, the preacher, teaching, speaking to his students. And we do not actually hear from the author of the book who remains anonymous until chapter 12, verses 9 to 14, which we'll look at in a few weeks. So, okay, as we gather around this morning and we look to what the teacher's trying to teach us, what are we to make of life? That's, that's the question that the teacher's dealing with here at the beginning of the book. And so, let's see what he has to say about what we are to make of life. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Hopeful. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is Vanity. Where does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Boy, that sounds like what I hear when I ask someone in my home to go clean their bedroom. <laughs> well, maybe maybe it sounds like some of you hear when you ask someone in your home or you remind them that they're able to change the toilet paper roll when it's empty. <laughs> Vanity of vanities. It's all meaningless. And, and it's interesting, the word, this is a major, major theme in this book. This vanity of vanities, it is the primary theme of the book. The primary theme of Ecclesiastes. Everybody get ready to get a big smile on your face. Everything is meaningless. <laughs> I didn't say and all God's people say, but some did. And the word that the teacher is using here, we're going to say this word together, this word vanity, the word is actually hevel. Everybody say hevel. Hevel. One, two, three. Hevel. That's the word that he's using here. And it, it captures this idea of meaninglessness. Or a better understanding would be like a vapor. A vapor comes and a vapor goes and, and, and we would think it doesn't have very much meaning at all. It's the primary theme of the book. It's a word or a phrase that's used 38 times throughout the book of Ecclesiastes in just 12 chapters. And there's something interesting that, that is happening here that scholars have seen that I think is, is really amazing and, and really compelling. Some scholars see a play on words that's going on right here at the beginning of the book of Ecclesiastes. The word hevel, is actually the same word that's used to name the character in the Bible of Abel. Same word. It's amazing. Abel was a shepherd. He was a keeper of the sheep. His name means breath. It signifies life. And indeed, for the writer of Ecclesiastes, for the author, for Solomon, Genesis chapters 1 through 3 significantly informs both his worldview and parts of the message that he's giving to his students. And it serves as a backdrop to much of what we'll read in the book. What God has created for good in the beginning, man ruined. And as early as the first set of brothers on earth, we have what? Envy, murder, death. Making all things appear from our human perspective, Under the sun, that's another term that's used regularly in this book. And that when he uses that term under the sun, it's to remind us, friends, this is where we are. This is where we're at. Remember our place. So it seems like all things from under the sun are meaningless. The author of Ecclesiastes compares the words of the teacher Koheleth to the instruction given from a shepherd. To his sheep. Look at verses, or chapter 12, verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed to the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. Abel's life in the book of Genesis. Many of us know this account of Cain and Abel. Abel's life lasted for but a vapor. We meet Abel in Genesis chapter 4, verse 4, and four verses later in verse 8, he's gone. Taken. From this earth, from his own brother. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 14 I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, a striving after the wind. Now look at this. Chapter 7, verse 15. In my vain life I have seen everything. Now look, doesn't this sound like Cain and Abel? There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Abel, the righteous, died in his righteousness while his brother Cain was allowed to live. And so it follows as we look at life. We realize when we read the book of Ecclesiastes, one of the messages in it is that life doesn't always go as planned. Amen? Man, life does not always go as planned. It's not clean and neat and tied up with a pretty bow. It's tough. It's difficult. We need grit. And the question is, how do we do life when we know that God is in control, but things are not going as planned? How do we do life when that's going on? And what the teacher is setting out to do in the first nine chapters of Ecclesiastes is he's trying to show us that the answer to this question right here cannot be found nor should it be found in what are the regularly accepted compartments in our lives for finding meaning. So we have some regularly accepted compartments that we often go to in our life to find meaning. And he bookends these compartments at the beginning of the book in chapter 1 with time, nature, and history. You're not going to find meaning in those places. And at the end of the book or towards the end of the book, in chapter 8, death. And so in between where we're going to be today are all these categories where the author is saying, look, when you're looking for the meaning of life, I'm telling you that in the regularly accepted compartments of finding meaning, you're only going to find vanity and meaninglessness. So let's take a look at this. Take a look at chapter 1, verses 4 through 11. How about time and nature and history can we find meaning in those places look down at your bibles starting in verse four chapter one and let's see what the writer says a generation goes and a generation comes but the earth remains forever The eye is not satisfied with seeing, the ear with, uh, filled with hearing. What has been will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is what? Nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after and so right here at the beginning where the regularly held compartments of time of history of nature don't go there to find meaning friends it's meaninglessness all a chasing after the wind how about wisdom what about wisdom wisdom seems like a noble place to go to find meaning seeking out the wisdom of those maybe who have gone before isn't that what we're doing even now I mean, isn't that what the teacher's doing here? He's gathering, he's sharing from his life experience. What about wisdom? Look at verses 12 to 18. This is interesting. If it doesn't come from time, from nature or history, maybe we can find meaning in wisdom. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under the heavens it is an unhappy business that god has given to the children of man to be busy with i have seen everything that is done under the sun and behold all is vanity striving after the wind what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted i said in my heart i have acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after the wind. We cannot catch it, friends. We cannot catch it. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases in knowledge, increases in sorrow. And many of us can sit here today and say, that is so true. How many of you have found in your life, the more that you know, the deeper that you go into a subject, into a topic, the more you realize you don't know. It's, you see the striving, the chasing after the wind, and we can read and we can read and we can read and learn and learn and learn. And there's always something we find that there's more that we do not know. So time, nature, history, wisdom, meaning can't be found in any of those places. What about money? We talked about new ways to give today. How about money? money? Money solves all the world's problems, doesn't it? Surely our answers to life's deepest meanings and purposes can be unlocked by the power of money. I mean, think about it, friends. We sit here today. You ever hear that saying, put your money where your mouth is? We put a lot of money today in education, do we not? Just to find out that wisdom is meaningless. So can money solve the problems? The teacher had unlimited wealth. By the way, this is why many scholars believe this was Solomon. He was wise. He had unlimited wealth. He was a king. It it all seems to add up that this is Solomon. He had unlimited wealth. No one had more money than this guy at the time that he lived. So what did he think? Was money where you could find meaning? Look at what he says in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this was also vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. This is expensive. My heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. I made great works. I built houses, planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. See the unlimited resources that he had here? I made myself pools, from which I watered the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver, gold, all the treasures of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great, and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil that I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity." And striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained. He had gained everything. And his conclusion. Everything that materially possibly could be gained on the earth. He had gained. Look at the summary of all that he had gained. And the summary at the end of that. I had gained nothing. Under the sun. Money's not the answer friends. Indulging ourselves in the pleasure of this world. Meaningless. Not the answer. What about work? Right? Time? No. Nature? History? No. Wisdom? Not really. Money? No. What about work? Certainly all of us are called to something. We're all called to have work, to find work, purpose, and meaning in the work that God has given us to do. Don't, I just want to, let's pause here. Don't get too depressed. All right? <laughs> We're going to be all right. There's good coming. All right? But we got to get through this. This is big. Heavy stuff. Do we find meaning in our work? Look at what he says. Ecclesiastes 2, 18 to 23. Look at this. I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun, seeing, now isn't this the dilemma for many of us, that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise? Or be a fool. Yet he will be the master for all of which I have toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair. Don't do that, church. No, not there over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed for someone who did not work for it. Wow. This is also vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, his work is a vexation, even in the night, his heart does not rest. Have you ever had a night like that where your heart does not rest? Anxiety's on your mind. Your mind is racing. You can't sleep. You, t- you toss and you turn. And what are you worried about? You're worried about work. This is also vanity. And now there's a pause here. And I'm so glad there's a pause here. We need a pause at this point. I think he understood, the writer, the teacher understood that his students needed a pause at this point. There's a pause for a clue. The answers can't be found in time, in wisdom, in wealth, in work. But look at Ecclesiastes verses 24 and 25. There's a clue right here. Where might we find the answers to life? Take a look. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Underline that verse in 25. That is a clue of where we might find meaning. And what does it press our minds forward to? What did Jesus say, apart from me, You can do nothing. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? In the middle of all this vanity and meaninglessness, the teacher gives pause to show his students an enigma. There is something puzzling about life. It's meaningless. All of these things that he talked about are meaningless But he gives us a clue at the end of chapter 2, and then in chapter 3, an enigma. In the midst of all of this meaninglessness, what do we find? What do we find in in chapter 3? Order. Order. Look at this. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1-8. For everything there is a season. And a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill, a time to heal. A time to break down, a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. That song is going through my mind right now. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace And a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, and a time to lose, a time to keep, a time to cast away, a time to tear, a time to sow, a time to keep silence, a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. Friends, there's a glimmer of hope in the midst of all this meaninglessness. There is some order and a time for everything. I mean, I think at this point, the teacher probably took inventory of his students and thought, if I don't spin this around here, I'm going to have some problems. <laughs> I'm to have some problems. And though we don't always see this order, and we don't always recognize this hope, we know that it's there. It exists. There's purpose for today, church. There's a proper time for everything. And knowing that God understands everything's perfect timing, should give us confidence to live victoriously, come what may. No matter what we face in life, there's a purpose, there's an order, there's a season. And because we know that God's in control, we can have confidence to face whatever comes our way with victorious attitudes. There's another truth that is recurring throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, and you can write this down. It's this truth, and and you you catch a glimpse of it even here at the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, that God gives. It's a recurring message throughout the book. Twelve times the teacher refers to, to God as giving something to man. Twelve different times. Life doesn't always work the way that we think it should or go the way that we expect But that doesn't mean that God isn't in control. And we can echo what we said last week. God is in control. Sometimes life is difficult. And that is okay. And from this order, the teacher begins to firmly develop his secondary theme. So the primary theme, everything's meaningless. We can't get away from that. That is the primary theme of the book. The secondary theme of the book is fear. God and again this isn't some kind of scary fear like we think about like fear fear this is kind of like standing in awe of the greatness of who God is and being uh, in utter speechlessness because of his greatness who he is we saw this clue in chapter 2 but now the teacher firmly fixes us on this reality in verses 9 to 15 of Ecclesiastes chapter 3 take a look at verses 9 to 15 of chapter 3 what gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is God's gift to man. Verse 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. God has done it. So what? So that the people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. So thankfully, the teacher gives us pause to reflect, to catch our breath. But now, unfortunately, our pause is over, and he drives us back into more vanity. So pause here, take inventory, everything has order. There's an order to all things, and a time and a season for all things. We should fear God because of that. He's in control. It shows us that he's in control. But it's like the writer's saying, the teacher's saying, but I know in your mind... There's still places that you want to go to find meaning. Time, no, nature, history, wisdom, wealth, work, all meaninglessness. What about justice, government, and politics? Do we even need to read? <laughs> right? We probably know that we don't need the teacher for this one, do we? But let's, let's, read. let's read what he says. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses... 16 through chapter 4 verse 3 justice government politics is there meaning to be found there moreover i saw under the sun that in the place of justice even there was wickedness and in the place of righteousness even there was wickedness i said in my heart god will judge the righteous and the wicked for there is a time for every matter and for every work i said in my heart with regard to the children of man that god is testing them that they may see what they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast. For all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from dust, and to dust all return. Remember, this is from the perspective of under the sun. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of beast goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better than that man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all of the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed. They had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living, who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not yet seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Wow, it's amazing. This is, friends, this is a picture. These first four chapters are a picture of man's existence, man's life under the sun. How do we fear God? What does it look like for us to fear God? How does that look in our everyday lives? If, if everything is meaningless, yet there's order and a time and a season for everything, and we are to fear God, what does that fear of God look like? And that's why we love chapter 5. That's why we love chapter 5. Go to chapter 5. Look at verses 1 to 7. Some practical ways for us to fear God. God. Start in verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near, to listen, is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Look at verse 2. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, you are on earth, therefore, let your words be few. Man, I need that verse. For a dream comes with much business. You know, on Thursday night, I got to go to the BlackRock um, annual banquet. And the speaker at this year's annual banquet was the chaplain for the Philadelphia Eagles. And uh, it, was, it was neat. His name is Pastor Ted. And he actually gave the message that he gave to the team the night before they won the Super Bowl. The, the message that he delivered to them is what he told us at the Black Rock Banquet this year. And the theme of that message I, I found incredibly in line with this to subdue your dreams. Subdue your dreams. Now look at this. For a dream comes with much business. Dreams are busy. And a fool's voice with many words. Interesting, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for He has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Verse verse 6, let not your mouth lead you into sin. Do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Here's verse 7. For when dreams increase and the words grow many, There is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Friends, I don't know about you, but. Some of the the dreams that have come into my life, some of the things that that I have found that I want to chase after are just that they're vanity. And at the end of those things. Once you've accomplished, once you've attained, once you've gotten to where you wanted to get to by the goals that you set forth. A lot of times. You wonder, you ask the question, is this all? Is this all there is? It's amazing. We need to be careful, friends, that the things that we desire in life are in line with God's will for our lives so that we're not chasing after the wind chasing after these vanities god is in control and this is countercultural but i'm going to say it let go of your dreams the things that you think that you're building here on this earth the crowns that you're accumulating here and let's lean into a greater dependence on god draw near to him and he will show you what he desires And go after those things. Go after those things. Fear God. Much of what we see in day-to-day life can be characterized as injustice, greed, corruption, folly. It seems that if we're to find any meaning or reason in life, it must be found in a right relationship with God. And in this reality, we begin to see the third and final major theme uncovered. Three major themes. And the last one is this. Enjoy God life. Everything is meaningless. Fear God. Enjoy life. It's a major theme. The teacher repeats seven times in just the first nine chapters. Seven times in nine chapters. The teacher says there is a joyful portion from God to be found in the middle of all of this meaninglessness. Take a look. Chapter 5, verse 18 and 19. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all of the toil with which one toils. See that? Find enjoyment in all the toil for which one toils under the sun. The days, the few days of his life that God has given him for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them, to accept his lot, to rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. There's enjoyment to be found, friends. I know this is kind of a, of a, of a message that's a little bit like, oh, it's like a, it's one of those glass half-empty messages. <laughs> so everything is meaningless. No, there's joy to be found. It's one of the major themes of the writer. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Go eat your bread with joy. Eat with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. And in the Bible, there's an incredible theme between oil, wine, and joy. You can trace it through the entire Bible. They're connected. Oil, wine, joy. Always connected. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life. That he has given you. Under the sun. Because that is your portion in life. And in your toil. At which you toil. Under the sun. And so why is this all important? That was the third goal today. How might our lives look in light of these realities? Why is all this important? Why is this book here? Why do we need Ecclesiastes as a church today? As a body of believers? How is it helpful to us? And really there's. Uh, three answers that we want to look at. In the Westminster Catechism, it says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And if we are indeed to do that, then one of the truths, one of the major themes, one of the ways that we can use the book of Ecclesiastes is that Ecclesiastes informs us on how to relate to God and think about life, When life doesn't go as planned. And boy, isn't that useful for us today? Because as many of us sit here today, we can reflect on times, perhaps even sitting here now, where life has not gone as we planned for it to go. And so one of the great ways that we can use the book of Ecclesiastes is to help inform us on how we are to relate to God and to think about life in these circumstances and situations that we find ourselves in. There's a second purpose. Ecclesiastes redirects our focus from the difficulty and meaninglessness of day-to-day living towards abundant life. Because we can get consumed in thinking about all the bad stuff, can we not? I mean, just turn on the 24-7 news networks and, and just open up the newspaper. And it's really easy for us to get consumed by all the negativity and all the vanity out there and so ecclesiastes really helps to redirect our focus from that difficulty that we see towards the abundant life that we're promised in jesus christ i came to give you life and give it abundantly john chapter 10 verse 10 and then finally ecclesiastes frees us from fearing about the unknowns there are a lot of unknowns out there but guess what They're all meaningless. All those unknowns. It frees us from fearing about the unknowns towards enjoying life in a right relationship with God. So there's great purpose for this book. There is great purpose. In fact, I think one of the most clearest, one of the most exciting purposes for the book of Ecclesiastes is Ecclesiastes teaches us that we can make much of a meaningless life By making much of God. And it teaches us that from the perspective of us. Of just standing, going through earth and living life. And seeing the things as they come. With raw, unfiltered emotion in the book. You can make much of a meaningless life. By making much of God. And isn't that the goal, church? As we gather together that we would grow in a greater love for God and a greater love for each other and that we would love, live, and lead for God's glory all the time in our day-to-day lives. Let's pray.